What's wrong? I don't know. Today, Wednesday? Today's Thursday. Oh, all right. Well, it feels like Wednesday. Uh, I'm feeling listless and despondent, and I'm not sure if it's related to the world or just, just a thing. I think it's related to the world and how we are having to live in this world and adapt to it. Every day this week, I have slept like crap and I have woken up completely unaware of what day of the week it is and my eyes feeling like sandpaper. So I'm there with you. Uh, I keep going to bed a little bit earlier, trying to get up earlier and get started on stuff. And I just hit the doze, doze, doze. Hit it for an hour this morning, got up, let the dogs out, laid down on the couch, went back to sleep. Wow, that's a lovely morning. I have not had that luxury because my class, which was supposed to start at 9.30 this semester, got shifted to 8 a.m. because of like COVID classroom shuffling and whatnot. And so, yeah, I have to be up and perky because no one else is perky at 8 a.m. among college students. But do you want to know what makes that class better? Yes. What makes that class better, or maybe I should rephrase it as who makes that class better, is the guest on our show today. Today is a super exciting day for me because the guest on our show is not only one of our podcast producers, because we are now featuring each of our producers to, to give them some airtime, but she is also my graduate student, Alexandra Niclou. We love Alex. We love Alex so much. I was just telling her today, what am I going to do when she finishes her PhD? Because she like keeps me on track half the time. Well, you could always sabotage her trajectory and keep her around for a while. I have threatened that to her, jokingly, of course, maybe, maybe half jokingly. And so the other exciting thing about this is I get to brag on Alex and I'm gonna try to brag in this intro so I don't make her feel terribly, terribly awkward while we're actually interviewing her. Alex is my first grad student. That's another exciting thing. And uh, she applied during my very first year at the university at Albany. And I was totally like, who the hell is applying to work with me, this no-name person? How does she even know I exist? And we ended up chatting over, was it Zoom or Skype? I think we totally did Skype. It was before like Zoom took off like crazy. It's Skype. I know, right? The Stone Age. And like, there was an instant, like, she's got her shit together and is interested in the kind of stuff that I do. And I think I'm willing to take as much of a risk on her as she was to take a risk on me because, you know, a first time advisor is a risk for any grad student because we don't know how to advise. We don't know what we're doing. And it has honestly been one of the best decisions I have ever made. I'm not sure if she would agree that it was the best decision for her, but for me, I know it was one of the best decisions I ever made. I have gotten as much out of this professional relationship as I think anyone can. And we were both lucky enough that when I accepted the position at Notre Dame, Notre Dame was willing to, to fund her as well so I could bring her with me because I could not imagine making that transition without her and, and leaving her behind given how close our mentor-mentee relationship is. And so I'm super excited to be able to highlight her today. And I'm also gonna brag, which we're gonna brag a bit, is that her dissertation work has been funded both by NSF and Winter Gren. And like, that's impressive. It was first round on NSF and, and the second round on Winter Gren. And like, I, 
I am the proud mama bear that when I got those emails, I started crying. I was so happy and proud. It's been good. And so she has set the bar high. And I think one of the most important lessons, this is like a mentorship thing, is that we often forget what we didn't know at that same stage. We've now been doing it for a long enough period of time. Like writing an abstract for us is like, boop, I can do that in my sleep or within under five minutes. And you forget you had no clue how to do that your first year of grad school. And so it's, it's, she has served in so many ways to teach me about how to be a better Mm. academic and a better mentor. And yeah, so she's here. Shall we let her in? Ah, yes. Let's let her in. Hello, Alex. It looks like you have locked yourself in the bathroom again for, to keep the dog out. Hi. Yep. That is who I am. (laughs) It's good for sound quality though. So yeah, that's why. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, wow, you're really taken to this podcasting thing. (laughs) Sitting in closets and putting a towel over your head to ensure that you have good sound quality. Good on it you. Was, it was the anthrolactology folks. And now I can't remember if it was Cecilia or Anjali or EA, but one of them like locked themselves in a closet surrounded by clothes during that podcast interview, which was great. Yeah. The recommended, if you're using your laptop, it, it reduces the amount of, of room reverb. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Alex, welcome to the show and welcome to being, you have been on the interviewer side, the editing side, and now you are on the interviewee side. All of that within one month of me starting. <laughs> and like almost like two weeks. So I know that we have a list of questions, but I'm, I'm sort of curious just to jump to that transfer question right, right out of the gate. We've had a few students transfer schools from where they are to here, but I've never really asked them about that experience. How was that for you? Oh, honestly, it it really wasn't bad at all. I first I'm kind of used to transferring because I I did my master's for two years and then I right so I went from undergrad to my master's and then two years of master's, two years at Albany, and then I transferred to Notre Dame. So I'm. I haven't stayed in the same place for more than two years in almost over a decade now. So I, I'm kind of used to it. And then I'm just a little humble brag, but I'm pretty social. So that, that helps a lot. I, I get to meet people pretty easily. And I did know people before coming. And yeah, just Kara was there. Kara introduced me to everybody. And yeah, it, it just it kind of made it pretty easy. I wasn't, wasn't shocked. So did you have to repeat coursework? Um, yes <laughs> I, did. I was lucky enough to be done with my prospectus and all of that at Albany but then when I moved to uh, Notre Dame they made me take their core work course which you know I a lot of it was kind of the same idea but seen from a different perspective so it wasn't too too bad it's just in my mind, I was already moved on from coursework and then I had to take it again, which was harder than actually taking the classes. But it, it wasn't, it really, looking back now, I'm like, I was just complaining a lot for nothing. But here, here's where, you know, Kara's going to brag on you because that first year at Notre Dame, you were taking classes, writing grants and transferring and being a TA. And like, you were wildly, wildly successful in all of these things. Mm-hmm. And so... I mean, don't sell yourself short on this one because you had a lot on your plate and most graduate students aren't still taking classes when they're applying for grants. Usually there's mm. like a year dedicated to that writing and you didn't really get that. Yeah, no, that, that's true. But it did keep me on the schedule, which now with COVID and being at home a lot of the time, I 
don't have that schedule mm. uh, as much but also i do like not having a schedule <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in mixed, different ways <laughs> mixed blessing i i went through three different grad programs transferring for my own reasons and, and money and had to repeat some things and that actually gave me some additional opportunity to fill in gaps mm. and made and so even though i technically went through my grad program fast that record time doesn't include the two stutter steps at other institutions and the time off and so it really was a long process for me one that i never actually this is probably the first time i've said it this way out loud i always not humble brag but brag brag <laughs> that i went through albany in record time but the reality of it was that I had been at Rutgers and Hunter and had a year off before I did that. And so in repeating certain classes, it really gave me a good, found, solid foundation that perhaps takes longer for others in the same program to get, so. Yeah, absolutely. Also, have, taking classes allows you to meet the people, the professors mm -hmm. and your fellow students, which if I had gone straight to working from home all the time, I would not have met anybody, so. Yeah, we have a lot of doctoral students come in and choose to take some of the intro classes specifically for that. And I think that's a wise insight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I transferred, which was not really the same thing because I finished my master's at Binghamton and then went on to the PhD at Albany, they, they made me take an intro course for exactly that reason. So I could pick whichever one I wanted, but it was just to meet my cohort. And I, yeah, that was very nice. Yes, yeah, wise. No, I mean, because that's the support group that gets developed. So no, that's really, yeah. really important. Uh, but let's back up. Like before the transfer, you know how this show typically starts and we always like asking people's origin stories. So let's talk about your origin story. Well, yeah, so I'm I'm from Luxembourg originally. Which makes you Luxembourgian? No, Luxembourger. Luxembourger, of course, that's what I meant. <laughs> Yes, yeah, I'm a Luxembourger and I speak Luxembourgish. Yeah, so nobody knows about Luxembourg, but, but then at the same time, Luxembourg knows nothing about anthropology, so I'm like right in the middle. Hmm. Uh, I do a lot of explaining in my life. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I've met a Luxembourger that I've known of before. Can you speak a little Luxembourgish for me so I can hear it? Yeah, klar. Mir wissen nicht viel über Anthropologie zu Luxembourg. Cool. Yeah, I just said, yeah, I said, yeah, of course, in Luxembourg, we don't know much about anthropology. So then how did you yeah. get interested in it, since clearly yeah. it was not something you grew up with? Yeah, so actually, I was thinking about this, because I knew this question was going to come, obviously. So I was thinking, I was like, how, how did I? And actually, my dad got invited to a conference in Chicago when I was in middle school. Mm -hmm. And my mom doesn't speak much English, and my brother and I at time didn't speak any English either. So when my dad was at the conference, my mom just took us to the field museum all day because nobody asks you questions, right? There's food there, there are bathrooms. It's perfect for people who don't speak the language. So we spent all day at the field museum, and I'm pretty sure that's where it started for me. Hmm. My mom said I got lost around like the like paleo section, and she she was like, "This is this is it. This is for her," and. Yeah. So I, when I actually applied to college, I went to Clark University for undergrad and they 
Surprisingly, they don't have an anthropology department there, even though that's where Franz Boas started the first anthropology <laughs> department. Yeah, it turned to a sociology department. And <laughs> my parents were not too, too keen about me doing anthropology. They wanted me to be a doctor, like every immigrant parent in the world. And so they're like, just do bio. And I ended up doing biochem and physics. And then you'll see what, what you'll do later uh, after that. And I was never really keen on doing medicine unless unless it was going to be sports medicine uh, so did your family move to the u.s no no but both my parents are immigrants in luxembourg already uh, okay so, gotcha yeah. from where where are they from my dad is italian and my mom is her parents immigrated from russia and then she immigrated from france to luxembourg and then i immigrated from okay. luxembourg to the u.s <laughs> <laughs> Long, long line of travelers uh, in and my then, family. And then all over the U.S. So, wait, where's Clark uh, College? Clark University. Clark so University. There is a Clark College. Yeah, but Clark University is different, and that's in Central Mass, okay. Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay. Small liberal arts research school. So what led you there? They have a Luxembourg program, and they were doing a lot of advertising. They have, like, a... I don't, I don't even remember, like a, a summer course or something. And that's yeah. how we heard about them. And we were like, oh, well, let's look into this. And then we just applied. I, I had no idea about any schools. I did not know what the SAT was until I was in the room taking one. Yeah, and we just applied to a blanket of schools that we kind of knew of, or, or had heard of. And then that's how I... So is me. there a Luxemburger expat community at Clark or in the U.S.? No, it is my brother and I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, there's really not that many. Actually, three kids went to uh, four-year colleges uh, within two years of one another, and we all live next to each other. So the other guy who went, who ended up going to Mi- U Michigan, was my neighbor, literally <laughs> next door neighbor. So yeah, it's Luxembourg is really not that small. This is just a crazy coincidence. So size-wise, Luxembourg, would you compare it to, say, Rhode Island, Delaware? Is it bigger, smaller? Yeah, so it's smaller than the smallest U.S. state. So it's smaller than Rhode Island, but not by a lot, just by a tiny little bit. We just we would just fit into Rhode Island. Yeah. So, so not that small, but still relatively small compared to what Americans are, are sort of used to when we travel. So from Luxembourg to Clark University in central Massachusetts... And then the decision to pursue a master's. How did that come about? Yeah, I was still maybe thinking of going to medical school if for sports medicine. Maybe not, but I also really wanted to explore the anthropology route because by that time I kind of knew a little better. I had, uh, had taken a cultural intro class at Clark. There was one in the sociology department. So I, I did take that and I, I really liked it. So I, I decided to follow that route. But in order also for my parents to like it, that had to have this lead to medical school or maybe help me get into medical school. And the Binghamton uh, program is called the biomedical program. So that mm-hmm. sold it. <laughs> so that is actually how I kind of finagled my way into an anthropology master's program. And then once I was there, I think my parents kind of gave up on <laughs> I love I was talking about it all the time. I, I told my parents all about like paleoanthropology and adaptation and everything I learned. I remember going home for summer and talking to them about tick-borne diseases because that is a lot of research about that is done in at Binghamton. And my parents 
thought I was going to study ticks for the rest of my life, which I never studied ticks ever, not even apping. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so and then once I decided that I was going to do a PhD in it, they were like, oh, okay, well, a PhD medical school will accept that. You'll still be a doctor. So I wanted to ask about your interest in sports medicine, how that came about. My dad is a cardiologist and he we don't have sports medicine as a kind of as a thing. Uh, in Luxembourg because there's just not the demand for it. So uh, he would do sports medicine as a rehabilitation for people who've had heart attacks once or twice a week. That was at what was called a sports medicine clinic, but it is nothing like what we expect it to be here. So he talked a lot about it and that's how I kind of got into it. I, Mm. I, I learned a lot about it and I was always an athlete. So I was always really into how humans can do so many different things so well and what makes one person so good at something and somebody else at something else and yeah i pushing yourself to the limits physically was always something that i was really really interested in and what the physiological underpinnings of that were yeah i wanted to bring up that you were a collegiate rower as well at clark university which you know plays a big role in even how you view anthropology today and the questions you think about yeah, absolutely. But at SUNY Binghamton, you worked with Gary James. And as, as you know, as we all know, you're the one who told me, actually, Gary James passed away just on October 15th. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share any any stories or fond memories you have of Gary. He was just the greatest, but it really came as a, as a shock to me. He was a great advisor, but also a great person. He was the DGS. I don't know if we called it the DGS, but he was the director of the biomedical program at the time when I was there. And I'm pretty sure he was still like this semester. He was still at too. And everybody knew him. He knew everybody, which is rare. Like you, that having that connection with that one person in the department. And he was always, always funny and witty. And he made a lot of jokes. He used to do uh, the sound from the Flintstones, the yabba dabba doo. <laughs> <laughs> he did that a lot yeah I, he also referred to himself as Gare Bear like that was yeah or t- we talked to him about himself in the third person oh Gare Bear what did you do like that was, it, he was really funny like he was a very sweet sweet but also passionate and extremely intelligent man like he was he dedicated his entire life to to his work and it was you could tell he he taught a class on stress and health which was like i loved it because again it was like the physiological responses that's also why he was my advisor of the body to to stresses and what a stressor is and he he's the one who really taught me that there are different kinds of stresses and that the, how much nurture actually plays a role in nature as well so i i learned a lot from him uh, he yeah he was a absolutely great great person and i'm so sorry to 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 have heard the news now yeah that's nice to hear though i didn't have nearly that level of interaction with him at meetings he was always someone we all saw as charming Mm -hmm. and funny and there was a, a running thread of jokes that he was always the center of so what you're saying makes total sense yeah yeah in that stress class Gary would always wear hats. That was his thing. He only uh, he only took the hat off if he had like an award presentation, which somehow he got a lot of awards. So I did see him quite a bit without the hat on, but most of the time <laughs> he had the hat on. And he told us at the very beginning of the semester that no matter how hard we try, we cannot always pay attention to everything. And we were like, yeah, okay, well, we'll pay attention in class. And at the end of 
the semester, we had completely forgotten that he had said that, but then he came in and he was like, so I have worn the exact same hat every Tuesday or whenever the class was. And now I want at least one of you in the class to tell me what that hat said. And none of us had any idea. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's great. hilarious. We need to implement something like this. Oh, oh. I like that. <laughs> I know. I love it too. I like, I can do a lapel pin. Like, can anyone remember the exact lapel pin I've worn all semester? But then I can't wear them all. Right. So that's a really lovely tribute to Gary. And thank you so, so much for sharing. But let's continue with your origin story going from master's to PhD now. Yeah. So I was saying earlier, it was no coincidence that I found Kara uh, because Mike Little, who's also at Binghamton, he mentored me through the whole process. He was also absolutely great in helping me find my way, find what I was really into, what what kind of anthropology I really wanted to do. Because when I first came in, I thought I was going to do genetics of sports. And he was like, oh, this is, you might want to look into <laughs> adaptation, <laughs> which, is, which is more of his thing. And he, he definitely led the way for me to help me out. And then he, he helped me with my applications. And so I decided to fly to Northwestern just to meet the department there because I was really interested in that department and working with them. And that's where I met Stephanie Levy. Uh, she was still a grad student at the time. And we started to chat and Stephanie was like, I would love for you to be here, but you should look into Kara Opperbox work. And I did. And it was pretty late already in the application season. And I remember in the lift home, from Northwestern to wherever I was staying. I remember writing the email to Kara asking if she was taking students. Yeah, and then two months later, I was accepted on Valentine's Day. Which you remind me, That's Alex me. is the sweetest person and like sends me a like happy, we matched as advisor advisee card. <laughs> it's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's how I ended up at Albany. And then, you know, it's history from there. That's when I, I really took off working with what I really like to do, right? Kara was always listening to what I actually wanted to do. And she knows that I'm very interested in sports as well. And yeah, so I, I started working on brown fat. And then when she told me that she was moving to Notre Dame, I, I'm pretty sure I told you in that meeting that I was going to follow you. So um, I yeah. believe you were at first stunned and horrified that I was leaving until we had everything <laughs> in stone that like you were coming with me if you wanted to come with me so yeah. That would be <laughs> shocking and that's always a hard part of the navigation of making that kind of change is mm -hmm. can you bring doctoral students with you because that's not always possible. That's the situation I was in as a graduate student because Herman left Wash U. But at that point, I was about to take off for my field work and it, it didn't really make sense to, to physically up and move as I was on the, the latter end of my, my graduate career. And so like of anyone, I knew the kind of bomb I was dropping on Alex when I told her what happened. Yeah, uh, that was a rough one. Anyway, enough about me. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about the dissertation project that you have planned? And funded. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, I am very lucky to be funded, so I do not have to worry about that anymore. There's one worry I, I do not have anymore. But yes, so I am looking at brown fats, which is uh, heat-generating tissue that, that activates at, at cold exposure. And I it has only been recently studied from an anthropological perspective and mostly in cold-adapted populations because of its you know heat-producing capacities. So I was interested in looking at 
what does it do to the human body in to metabolism in a tropical population so we thought of Samoa uh, and Samoans because not only are they tropical but they also have a very interesting anthropological past uh, so to say where they have been studied quite a bit and they have, there's a lot of evolutionary theories uh, about their physiology and their their physiques in general so looking at what brown fat does on your metabolism and on your glucose disposal, which we know from previous work by Steph and by Kara that is pretty pertinent in how brown fat utilizes glucose in cold adapted populations. We wanted to see what it does to a tropical population and a population that is for the vast majority obese, which is the case in Samoans. So if there is any health components that could be related to brown fat activity, could we implement that in Samoans? What would be the specific needs that Samoans need in their case, since they are tropical populations and an island population? And then there's the evolutionary question about this thrifty genotype that we've heard about in Samoans, where it's believed that they have this bigger, larger physiques because as a mismatch adaptation to the long voyages at sea to settle the islands of Polynesia. So we were thinking maybe brown fat plays a role in that too, but I'm also very aware that the thrifty genotype hypothesis in talking about Samoans is, or Polynesians in general, is very controversial. So uh, just looking at that and maybe parsing out what is a fact and what is something that is just being assumed yeah, it would be good. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the thrifty phenotype genotype model, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yes. So as I said before, Samoans in particular, but Polynesians in general, are a very heavy population. They have a high average BMI as a population. As a result, they have high obesity and high uh, risk of diabetes. And that is believed to be the result of uh, thrifty genotype. That was that those early Polynesians who first peopled these islands came on ships, obviously. And even though those are tropical islands, uh, they had to cross the seas that are really cold for a very long time. So they were cold and they might also have been starving because if they were looking for the islands, uh, they, they may have run out of resources. And those who did survive and actually populated the islands with those who had those genes that were thrifty uh, from an energetic point of view. So they harvest their calories and keep them. And so when the resources are available and it's not cold on a tropical island, then that results in a mismatch where they are more likely to have higher risk of obesity and and diabetes because they keep those calories in in, instead of burning those calories yeah yeah (laughs) well and and not just that they're on a warm tropical island because until the modern era they were subsisting on marine Mm -hmm. protein and then taro and breadfruit and and things but globalization and the the amount of cheap low nutrient, high calorie processed food that's available now is in particular linked to the phenotypes that that you mentioned, the obese phenotypes, which weren't necessarily a problem even a hundred years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And that is why a lot the thrifty genotype hypothesis in the context of Samoans is highly debated to say the least, um, Mm. mostly because the archaeological record and also cultural like 
just talking to locals and what they say about their traditions and their oral stories, they, these people knew exactly what they were doing. They were not just wandering around the seas without resources and being cold, right? So there's some contingency points there that, that yeah. need to be parsed out. Yeah, that's a really good point. So what are your predictions? So my predictions, I would say that we expect to find brown fat in adult Samoans because for now we do not know. Uh, there has been some preliminary works on babies that is not published yet, but we know that Polynesian babies have some brown fats. We know that temperate climate populations have brown fats. I've done work on this. Others have done work on that. So that is promising that Samoans and Polynesians in general have brown fat as well, even though they are in these tropical environments. And then from a glucose perspective, again, we do predict that the brown fat that is present is also activated at cold exposure and that it is using a substantial amount of glucose to fuel its heat burning capacities. So yeah, so we we, we definitely predict to see these core changes, but because there is very little known about brown fats from an anthropological perspective, and even in general, people have only started looking at brown fat in humans, in adults at least, uh, since the early 2010s. So it's it's like a decade old, and, and we know very little. So this is this is exploratory more than anything. But I'm pretty sure that I'm gonna be able to find this and then make those health and evolutionary uh, interpretations from that. So when you say cold activated, is there a specific temperature that we're talking about? It's well, human variability. <laughs> so no, there's not like one temperature where everybody's brown fat is activated, but it is as soon as when you personally feel uncomfortable, I would say. Usually we aim around 65 degrees Fahrenheit for exposure. So some people like Kara do very well at 65 degrees, uh, others do less well, and you start seeing those differences. So the Brown fat is activated before you start shivering. So it is the organ that allows you to produce heat without having to produce this super costly uh, mechanism that is shivering. And then it stays activated once you start shivering as well. But it is this right when you get a little bit uncomfortable when you're not in your thermal neutral zone, that's when, that's when brown fat uh, is activated. So is it possible that even though it's tropical there, that the fact that it rains a lot which would make people uncomfortable and provide a bit of a chill here and there. And their islands, which have those winds and they're wearing traditionally lava lavas and that's it. Well, all of those factors sort of feed into, yes, we definitely see a role for brown fat. It doesn't have to be in the Arctic. Yes, absolutely. Because so my research in Albany was on seasonal differences in brown fat activity. So I used the same sample in the summer and in the winter. And I looked at how brown fat activity was different between the two seasons. And you definitely see a change there. So I absolutely think that there is enough time for acclimatization. There is also enough time for acclimatization of brown fat and its activity. I can think of so many analogs to that. Like there's tons of Samoans in not just Seattle, as we know, but also Alaska where there's a lot of shipping industry. So there's a lot of work opportunity. So when I've worked with Samoans in Hawaii and in Samoa, a lot of the diaspora community from the U.S. are coming from places like Alaska, which seems counterintuitive if you think of them as a tropical people. But of course, they are adaptive 
and they're able to live anywhere any other human is, I would be really intrigued after you do this first study of seeing some comparative stuff. So you have a career's worth of work ahead of you here. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm very happy. It's sometimes <laughs> overwhelming. I think about it, it's like, oof, way where to start after this, but uh-huh. yeah, no. I'm... And because of COVID, going to Samoa, which still has zero cases, right? Yeah. As far as I know, COVID is, has not hit Samoa at this point. What is your contingency plan since you can't really go right now? Yeah, even though Samoa has no cases, I am not going to be the one who brings it to them. So I am not going to Samoa. Instead, actually, it worked out really well. I I think it it gave me a lot of new opportunities. So I am keeping my study design exactly the same because for them, there is no COVID component to take into account. For them, everything is going just as as it was before. And we are working with the Olaga study group and they have been doing amazing work there for quite a while now. So they have local as well as Western researchers that are there and that have been working nonstop since throughout this whole pandemic. And I we've decided that they are going to take over. They're going to take over the data collection. So I am recording training videos that just explains how to use the equipment what exactly envisioned for my data collection, what an appointment looks like with a participant, all of that. And then I will also, the time zone difference works really great. Uh, when it is 7 a.m. for them on a Tuesday, it's 2 p.m. for us on a Monday. So it works great. And so this, we can sync up when the participants come in and then they will be collecting my data on my behalf and then sending it to me in, in real time. And I will be able to to be there over Zoom if there is any issues or anything. And yeah, so it's it's all up to the Samoan uh, research assistants that are there that have been doing amazing work all these years before me. They didn't need me to be there the first time to help, for me to hold their hands. So they definitely <laughs> don't need me this time either. And yeah, I am very confident that this is gonna go great. And I think from a trust perspective, participants are more likely to, to engage and to participate if it is Samoans who are going to be the face that they're interacting with. So I yeah, the Olanga crew saved my butt when I was there the summer before last, and I forgot about the electricity voltage differences and blew out my bioimpedance analyzer right out of the gate and had to run to them and beg to borrow. I think I borrowed a scale from them. But they're right there in the Ministry of Health, right across from the Central Hospital, right in the middle of Apia in, in downtown Samoa. So yeah, they, they have a great setup there and they're a wonderful crew to work with. So you are, I wouldn't say lucky because you set it up. You know, we've used the connections that Kara has that we have to the Human Bio Association. And as you pointed out, you're a gregarious person. So all of that feeds into being super, super flexible in, um, ex- I would say, extenuating circumstances, but all field research has extenuating circumstances. Mm. That's the rule of thumb, really. The biggest rub here, I would think, is that part of why many of us love to do anthropology is we actually like to travel. Mm. So we do it even when we don't absolutely need to. Like I could conduct some of my research from afar too, but it's both easier, one, to do it when I'm there, and two, I want to go. Yeah, there is always that. But the time difference is an issue. So relying on those 
sub uh, Pacific cables to work, right? But, or satellites. Yeah. Or... But it is a really good example of pivoting research plans in the time of COVID, which we are all thinking about right now. Yeah, no, no, I think ethically, you're starting off on the right foot. Part of our desire to travel and be colonial agents all over the world is an ethical problem. Mm -hmm. uh, COVID sort of forcing us to be even more reflexive. And I think a lot of us want to be, and I say that personally, knowing they have no COVID rates and I should not be the one to like take them there either, but I really want to. Mm -hmm. Not expose them to COVID. I just really want to go. I'll throw this out there too. So the other side of that coin is, this is true of Samoans, but it's also, I think, true in general is once we get really good at these sort of biomedical approaches to doing things from a distance and with technology, we lose touch with the ethnographic setting. And for Samoans, I've seen their response to the CDC flying in and flying out and not spending time with them, right? Being all about the data and not about the culture. So mm -hmm. I wonder... Have you thought about that and what your plans are for maybe visiting down the road or getting a sense of the ethnographic context? Yes. So I am still planning on hopefully once COVID clears and then also since I'm on a student visa here, I had some immigration issues as well to come back into the country. But once that is cleared, I'm still hoping to go either towards the end of the data collection, just at least to meet the research assistants who've been working with me all this time that I will have never met face to face, or just to kind of bring back the results of the study, yeah. meet everybody and then kind of make, make it official. That is because I am not passing up on a chance to go to Samoa either. <laughs> so. it's, it's beautiful. So yes, all those things. Your predictions, a lot of your predictions for the, the Samoan work that you, you know, submitted grants and all that for came out of some lab work that you did in Albany and you've alluded to this already. And you are, of course, working on that manuscript now. Could you give us a couple of highlights of those results? Yeah, so absolutely. What I did was I used the same cohort of people in the summer and then I tried to get as many as possible back in the winter. And then I kind of added new participants to just fill the gap of numbers, but I, I got 49 repeat participants. So I, I was pretty lucky uh, with that. That's because we offered them coffee and granola bars. Clearly the big draw for that experiment. <laughs> I do not know why people kept coming back. It is, it is not the worst. Not pleasant. <laughs> yeah, but it's definitely not pleasant because people are wearing these cooling suits that are like big pajamas and they have tubing sewn into them. And then once we do all the measurements at room temperature, and then once we start the cold exposure, uh, we redo all of those same measurements to compare them. But the cold exposure is ice water flowing through those tubings right on the person's skin so they don't get wet, but there's just tiny little plastic tubing between them and the water. And so it's it's not a pleasant, I've done it, Kara's done it. We, we were all participants in this. So we've all tried it out. It is not pleasant. It's also not the worst thing in the world. Is it like ice water emergence or ice? No, bath? it's not that shocking because it's also, it's a bit more subtle. Like you feel the parts of your body that the cold water comes through first. Like it's the back gets hit first and then it like trickles down your legs. It's kind of creepy a little bit. The first 10 to 15 minutes. Well, this was also like when I was the participant, this was like at the peak of my weightlifting. And so I was in pain every day and sore and my muscles burning. It was therapeutic for me for like the first 10 to 15 minutes. And then it's like, all right, 
I am done. Really <laughs> These <don't>. last 15 <laughs> minutes are hell. <laughs> yeah, I think what's the worst about it is, so it's a 90 minute study total. It's 30 minutes, only the last 30 minutes at cold exposure, but you are so bored, right? Cause it's, we're measuring resting metabolic rate. So you're just lying there uh, for an hour beforehand. And then you're lying there for the last 30 minutes and you have nothing to think about, but the fact that you're really, really cold. Can you <laughs> listen think- to podcasts or anything yeah yeah we we at first we were like no because then you know the rest of metabolic rate is gonna go up but then we were very selective about what people could listen to so nothing you know like no horror stories no comedy no sausage of science podcasts (laughs) (laughs) yeah something something, mostly music and we made people most listen to music and and that helps a little bit yeah also we saw a lot of some people because of anxiety like they just did not want to be there anymore they were kind of getting yeah like mri anxiety Mm -hmm. so yeah that's how we measured it and we we did the exact same thing in the summer than that we did in the winter and we saw that obviously when we are comparing the room temperature measurements to the cold temperature measurements there's an increase in metabolic rate but there's also decrease in skin temperature but we compared sternum, which does not have brown fat, with shoulder temperature. And the decrease in temperature was definitely less in the shoulder than it was in the sternum. So it shows that the heat that's being released from brown fat is doing what it's supposed to do at cold mm-hmm. exposure. And when we compared the summer data with the winter data, we saw that that difference in temperature was actually much greater in the winter. So there was more release from heat and more heat release from brown fat in the winter than there was in the summer. But even though metabolic rates also increased in the winter, it did not do it by a lot. It, it was not significant. So there's kind of this buffering of energy expenditure in the winter. There's kind of this, we're not using up more calories than we really need to, but we are still producing more heat. So it's kind of this efficiency cost-efficient mechanism that happens after what I believe is acclimatization, because I started the winter data collection February 1st, so they had, and you know, Albany is not upstate New York, but the capital district, and it's kind of, it's on the colder side in the winter, so they had all of November, December, January to kind of get acclimated, and then some of the last participants came in March, so there's a long acclimatization period that we don't have in the summer. So I think that that difference, that cost-efficient difference that we see in how brown fat is activated in the winter is is due to this acclimatization of its activity over time. So I have a question for both of you as brown fat experts. So it, it occurs to me in listening to you describe this, if somebody runs hot, right, you hear this expression or you hear people who they may be hot when everybody else is cold. I have one son of three who are born exactly at the same time who runs hot he's the kid wears shorts in the winter is that because they have more brown fat yeah we do not know enough yet about brown fat if that's what it is i think it might just have to do with metabolism right his metabolism might be a little higher than than his brothers which might be due to brown fat i'm not saying it's not but 
there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah, it's a combination of, could be differences in metabolic rate. So one of them might have just a higher base of metabolic rate than the others. It could also be related to muscle mass because muscle, like just moving, if you have more muscle, that's going to produce more heat, also increase your metabolic rate. But it could also just come down to tolerance, which is, you know, a highly individual thing too, that one son just might have a higher tolerance for cold that's completely independent of metabolic rate and brown adipose tissue and has nothing to do with it. So yeah, it's a gloriously complicated question. Glorious. Glorious. That's why I love it. There's so many facets to it and it's this dark, deep hole that I get to dive in and I, I actually really enjoy it. There's so much to look into. So you have so much going on. I want to know how in the hell you find time to do anything else. Like, oh, I don't know, produce the Sausage of Science podcast in addition to being a guest on it and sometime interviewer. Why add this to your list of things you need to be doing? So I'm trying to be funny here, but I want to know how the sausage of podcasting is made. And I listen to a ton of podcasts. I, like every time I'm doing the dishes, I'm taking out the dog. I, I'm listening to everything from true crime to planet money to anything. And I'm always wondered what the uncut version sounds like. Mm. So that was, that was the big where I was, oh yeah, I definitely want to do this. But then also more rationally, I wanted to kind of get the opportunity to meet people, which I right like in my first month, I already got to meet Dave Franklin and mm -hmm. interview him and kind of be part of this process, kind of be like immersed in the, the world of the Human Biology Association and, and actually know what these people are working on, what, what they're like in real life versus mm -hmm. not just what they're like on paper and, and their research and who they are and maybe also for future opportunities for myself, you know, like who, who do I like? That was very important. And then knowing that I was going to do this training videos for the Samoan research assistants, I knew I was going to have to learn how to edit videos, which mm. is a little different than editing a podcast, but also not crazy different. Right. So knowing that I was going to be trained in this before starting, I was like, this is a golden opportunity. Like, this is, this, this is a perfect fit for me. So I jumped on the occasion. I jumped on the opportunity and yeah, here I am. So that reflects, I think, exactly why Kara and I started doing the podcast, like all the reasons. I will say that I have found those all to have been our experience. Mm -hmm. We have had all those experiences and more, but I'm curious so far than in a month. What have you learned about podcasting or the raw state of things? One of the big things I learned is that I was always so marveled by how well-spoken most people are. <laughs> And then you listen to the uncut version and you're like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but some people are very well-spoken and they're much easier to, and that doesn't make them easier to edit because I, one thing I've learned even just from like editing three podcasts now is that people who are more well-spoken than others maybe replace um with, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, is much harder to edit out than um. Just, That's interesting. Yeah. That is, yeah, that is one of the big things I, I, I've learned is that being well-spoken and precise in what you're saying is something that comes from experience, something comes from doing this a lot. And you, you can tell about how, how often people have talked about their subject before. And that comes through, that shines through in, in, in the editing process. Yeah, That's really interesting. Right. So other than listening to podcasts, what else do you do for fun? 
what I really like to do is read novels, all kinds of novels. I'm a big reader, mostly things that are not very scientific, <laughs> just leisure. Yeah, so I, I'm a big reader. I'm also a big, uh, me and my husband, we, we build Legos a lot. Like, mm, interesting. <laughs> I think my husband and I rubbed off a little bit on that one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's, it's more. It's more than just an academic match. Uh, yeah, and then we do, yeah, we we like the building aspect and the the puzzle aspect. Like we we also do a lot of when pre-COVID we did a lot of escape rooms, and now post-COVID we do a lot of those online or card games that are like escape type puzzle games. Yeah, no, I'm a full-on nerd. Like <laughs> I go to the gym. I'm also a rower. I'm still a rower. Oh. I don't just study sports. I actually do. do All that. right. Tell me about this online puzzle game thing, because as a fellow nerd, it sounds like something that may be interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, it's most most escape rooms that used to be actual physical escape rooms. Now, if you go on their website, kind of a Zoom meeting, it depends on the place, but it's a Zoom meeting where you have the narrator who's with you and they share their screen with you. And then they show you the plan of the, the room. Mm -hmm. And then you can be like, oh, well, let me check behind this mirror. Mm -hmm. And then they show you a picture of the mirror. And then you have to tell them, I want to take the mirror off the wall. And, and it's fun. Do, do they still charge you for it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course they do. I get it. Yeah, of course yeah. they do. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just, yeah. just checking. Yes. So, how do we wrap this up? <laughs> yeah, but I have a do. Yeah, but that is a too. That is the perfect ending. Yeah, but I do. Alex, it was actually I should let Chris wrap this up because again, I get to talk to Alex all the time. So it, it's been a pleasure. And so the the lesson here that's implicit is that you are easy to talk to, you're fun to talk to, and I look forward to both seeing you when I get to travel to Notre Dame again, or not. I, I like, look forward someone's to Someone's expecting a second invitation real quick. <laughs> well, my family is in Indiana, so it's, it's not that difficult for me to make a, a jaunt up there if I find myself visiting my family, which I anticipate will happen sometime in my life. It's great working with you. So yeah, thank you for joining us and mirroring our own predilections for podcasting. That really, really helps a lot. And then also Samoa. That means that I'll be seeing you in the field a lot too. So I look forward to a long and fruitful friendship, collaboration, collegial ship, whatever the hell the word is. What's the word in Luxembourgish? Collaboration. Yeah. All right. So why don't you say thanks for listening to us on the Sausage of Science in Luxembourgish. Merci does the Upton Sausage of Science podcast latched out. Awesome. Awesome. And, and do you listen to podcasts in Luxembourgish or in English? In English and French, yeah. English and French. Cool. So impressive. Well, it's good to talk to you. Yes, it's good, good time to you. Thank you. And Bye. we'll be in touch. Bye-bye. <laughs>